After a 14-year ban, there's a crack in the wall stopping A-76 competitions. If you remember Circular A-76, it's a OMB document that governs how agencies can compete federal positions considered commercial or non-governmental. Since 2009, though, Congress has prohibited any money being spent on A-76 competitions. In his weekly reporter's notebook, executive editor Jason Miller writes about why the House Republicans have started to chip away at that wall surrounding the competitions. Jason, let's start with reviewing what they exactly are and why they haven't been around for so long. Tom, A76 and really the whole idea of competitive sourcing, public-private competition, whatever you want to call it, really dates dates back to the 1960s. And it's something that Congress put in place, uh, I think, during the right after the Eisenhower administration with this idea of, hey, the government seems to do a lot of work that the commercial sector does. Should that make sense? Should the government do commercial work? Should they compete with the commercial sector? And and should we have a way to understand what it is? Got some play, got some attention over the last, you know, the next 20, 30, 40 years, Tom. And during the Bush administration, George W. Bush, they made a big push as one of their presence management agenda items for competitive sourcing. And that obviously raised the ire of the unions and concerns about federal employees with their you know, jobs be outsourced. And by the end of the Bush administration, Senator Barbara Mikulski, the former Maryland senator, put a provision in the 2009 appropriations bill that basically said agencies cannot spend any money to do these public-private competitions. And here we are 14 years later, Tom, and that provision sticks today. And there's been little to no public-private competitions. A76 has been dormant for the last 14 years. Yeah, I think some of the younger generation might not know of that horrible danger (laughs) to their jobs. So now Republicans in the House are asking the White House about this. Why now? Because of budget concerns? I think there's two things going on here. Number one, uh, they did write a letter to Shalanda Young, the director of the Office of Management and Budget, and that letter from uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, Congressman Pete Sessions, and Congresswoman Lisa McLean. They're all subcommittee chairwomen, chairmen of the House Oversight and Accountability Committee, asking, number one, what is the status of something called the FAIR Act, which is the Federal Activities Inventory Reform Act of 1998. Have you put those out there? What, what do they look like? Can we find them? What do they look like? And the second thing they're saying is, we believe this is important for two reasons. One, it's about an open and transparent government. What jobs are commercial in nature? What jobs are not inherently governmental? And then also, as we talk about, and this is what the subcommittee has been saying, dollars and budgets, and does it make sense? Is it something to look at? Can the private sector do something cheaper than the government? And I think they're fair questions to ask. They're not saying, let's bring back A76. They're not saying we should outsource all of the government. They're just asking the question. Is there any particular person behind this? It's driven by Peter Warren, I'm told, who is a former Trump administration official at OMB. He spent about four years within the Office of Management and Budget. One of his roles was Associate Director for Federal Management Policy at OMB. I think, Tom, that's a job that may not exist anymore. And if it does, I'm not sure who's in it during the Biden administration. (laughs) Currently, Warren is a senior advisor to committee chairman James Comer. All right. And the FAIR Act reports themselves. I mean, in many ways, they're almost like registering for the draft. Every 18-year-old male in the country still has to register, even though there's no draft anymore. In that same way, the even though there's no A76s, agencies still have to report under the FAIR Act. You're absolutely right. And uh, what the committee, the subcommittee letter says to OMB is the FAIR Act inventories are poor, and those that are posted online are in formats that are barely decipherable. And I have to uh, be honest, Tom, I, I don't think the committee 
committee's conclusion is exactly wrong. Uh, I did my own review of the fair act inventories based on links provided by the Office of Federal Procurement Policy in OMB, and it definitely demonstrates a lack of attention to the fair act. It is the law of the land, and, and there are reasons that Congress has asked you to do this. If you go back to when was the last time OMB really focused on the fair act, and it actually goes back to 2017. In fact, in 2019, OMB put out a notice in the Federal Register to say, hey, here are the 2017 fair act inventories. But that's barely the, what they did because when you go to that Federal Register notice, and I do have that linked up on federalnewsnetwork.com, it just takes you back to the agency's main website. It actually does not take you directly to a page, a subpage where the Fair Act inventories are listed. And when you go to OMB, OFPP's website for Fair Act inventories, same thing. Those links, sometimes they take you to Fair Act inventories. Sometimes they just take you to a page. So in the State Department's case, it takes you to an old page, and the State Department says, click here for the new page. And when you click there for the new page, it goes to nowhere. It might as well be a 404 error. And then when you look at the inventories themselves, they are very difficult to read. They're coded. They're in spreadsheets. They're in PDFs. They really are all sure. over the place. Now, it's probably safe to say that the Biden administration would sooner put a oil derrick on the National Mall than, than sign up for A76 competitions. Is there any signs that Congress might be willing to open this door, or is this just maybe some posturing by Republicans in the House? It's definitely some posturing by the Republicans in the House. You know, they they promised to be hold the, the Biden administration accountable. This is just another piece to that puzzle, I think. At the same time, there has been attempts in the past to fix some of the longstanding challenges with A76. In fact, uh, former Senator Mikulski and current Congressman John Sarbanes introduced a bill in 2011 called the Correction of Longstanding Errors in Agencies' Unsustainable Procurements, or Cleanup Act. The idea behind this was to try to fix some of those problems with A76. The, the bill, unfortunately, never advanced through Congress. And there was a 2020 Congressional Research Service report looking at A76 specifically around the Defense Department, and they came up with a bunch of questions that Congress should ask, stuff like, should the current law be modified and, and should the policy guidance be modified to reflect some of the best practices and prior lessons learned? What benefits may be realized by requiring a phased rollback of the moratorium and, and allowing some selected public-private competition? to proceed as pilots. Even DOD in 2018 asked Congress, and, and they potentially submitted a legislative proposal asking for some limited help to look at A76 and look at some public-private competitions. As far as we know, that sure. either legislative proposal died in Congress or never was sent. So could A76 sail again? Probably won't fly. The unions, AFGE specifically, are very much against it. But could you think of A A76 in a new light? And if you think about going back to the Trump administration, what they did, and they talked about moving from low-value manual work to high-value analytical work and getting feds to really focus on that high-value work, could A76 be in that vein? And could you focus on not just competing jobs with the private sector, but what technology like sure. robotics process automation could be brought in to take care of those low-value manual labors that feds shouldn't have to do anymore? Or what about what is the private sector roles that are out there? Could the private sector come in and do it more cheaply? And is there a way to understand what that would look like? If there's an opening, it's let's look at it differently than we have in the past. You're absolutely right. I'm not sure the Biden administration or the federal unions would say we should stick with the status quo of A76. Well, Chekhov might have said there's a gun on the wall and it's only the first act. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure, Tom. And check out his reporter's notebook now at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. 
came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that to me is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it 
would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, we have institutions that want to define themselves uh, based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you, that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an wow. audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. 
we would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here, you understand the culture over here, you understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.